Is it still the smelly season in, in New York? It's not that hot here, but the subway is like a thousand degrees. Maybe we could start the show with our traditional somebody's in New York and doesn't enjoy it. episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by Sarah Cliff and uh, live from New York. It's, it's Ezra Klein. We got a great show, uh, great show coming up. Uh, we got a, a really hot white paper uh, about emergency rooms. Uh, we're we're going to talk about cost sharing reduction subsidies, a, uh, a profoundly weedsy subject uh, and an important policy development. That And we're also going to make an ask of our listeners. I think this is the first time we have done this, but um, there's this project on emergency billing we're working on. It relates to the white paper. And um, you should listen to the whole episode if you want to learn more about what we need from our listeners or just go into the Weeds Facebook group, um, click on a note that's in the show notes of this podcast, and you will learn a little bit more. But we are trying to learn more about emergency bills for a project I'm working on. It's very suspenseful. Hang out until this awesome white paper, and I will tell you a little bit more about what we're looking for. You know what else is suspenseful? Here in the New York office, I have in front of me on a TV a large clock that is counting up, including with a very fast-moving milliseconds. And it's a very like uh, anxiety-producing way to record a podcast. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> just watching the time tick by. Yeah, like I'm just like watching my life fly by before my eyes. Well, you're you're recording the weeds. I mean, what else? I know, this is true. This is my highest purpose. All right, so we should jump into it with um, some policy and some news. Yeah, so, you know, obviously the sort of the big news of the week is uh, these events in in Charlottesville and and the president's floundering efforts to address them. Floundering and offensive efforts to address them. (laughs) And I think that we, unlike the president, do not feel that there's a really nuanced question as to whether neo-Nazis are good. Um, don't have a ton really to to say about that, but closer to our brand, the subject of the show, I, I, I've been wanting for a while to talk about the RAISE Act, which is a immigration bill that was uh, sponsored by Tom Cotton and David Perdue in the Senate that was sort of formally endorsed uh, by the Trump administration uh, last week or, or the week before. It embodies the real sort of policy view that Donald Trump has brought to the mainstream of the Republican Party about immigration that is quite different from how George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan governed, uh, totally different from how John McCain ran, fairly different from from even what Mitt Romney ran on. And this is a, a bill that has sort of two big ideas to it. One is that whether you get permission to come and immigrate to the United States should be based on uh, a system of points uh, driven by your educational attainment, your language skills, your sort of salary that you can command, uh, your age. Um, and this is what what Trump talks about as a merit-based immigration system. Uh, but the other thing that the bill does, which seems important, is that it just cuts the total volume of immigration to the United States by 50%. So, you know, it's saying we're going to get better immigrants than we have now by some metric, but also like just way, way, way fewer. Then this is legal immigration, right? So like all the stuff people email me anytime I say that Trump doesn't like immigrants, like, oh, it's the law, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But this is nothing to do with the rule of law. It's about the the legal immigration flows, and it, it reflects the viewpoint of of Donald Trump that there is some critical emergency in America about the quantity and character of the people who are moving to this country legally. And frankly, it it seems a little. I mean, it seems nutty to me. I mean, it's not treated with the kind of like shock and horror of the president standing up there and being like, I don't know, some of the Nazis are good. Um, but, you know, just because it's sort of a dry policy document, it still leaves you, it leaves me at least, baffled. Like, what what is the purpose I, of this? I don't think that in the context we're talking in, it's baffling. And, and and this is the way I do want to 
I want to talk about the policy itself, which has some very weird features, but I, I do want to talk about its broader context. This feels to me like one of those debates where you have a sentiment that is being expressed in ways that are both appropriate for polite society, for lack of a better euphemism, and then inappropriate, that, that, it, that it gets dressed up and it gets dressed down. And the Nazi march is like an intense dressing down. And I want to be very careful because I think you really, you really can support a cut in legal immigration without in any way having sympathy for a single person in Charlottesville. But I don't think that is what the president believes. You know, you had this chant in Charlottesville, you will not replace us. You will not replace us. You will not replace us. Occasionally it became Jews will not replace us. But there are not that many of us Jews, by the way, so we're not going to replace <laughs> you. Um, but you will not replace us. And that is not a fear about downward pressure on low-wage workers, which is, by the way, at this point in the economics literature, seems pretty unlikely to be true. And if you wanted to help those workers, you could, instead of not letting immigrants in, just not take away their health care or give them a tax cut or not or raise taxes on rich people so you can give them jobs. I mean, there are a lot of direct ways to help low-wage workers if you want to do that. There is a real ugly fear here. And Trump is sympathetic to it when it is expressed in marches like in Charlottesville. And he is sympathetic to it when it is expressed in high-minded, points-based immigration legislation. Now, again, I really want to be clear, because while I am not necessarily, I'm not pro the RAISE Act for reasons we'll get into, I, I do not want to say that anybody who believes we should cut immigration or who supports this bill or even the sponsors of this bill in the Senate are in any way um, where Trump is on this. But I do think that one reason Trump is driving these kinds of sentiments, both in terms of the cultural symbolism of the presidency and in terms of its agenda setting power, is not because he has a considered view on what would be the most economically beneficial mix of immigrants to bring into the country. Um, in fact, like everything he's doing flies in the face of what you do there. I just want one quick note on the RAISE Act. Among its point in its points-based system, you need 30 points to, to be qualified. Winning a Nobel Prize gets you 25. So if you've won a Nobel Prize, but nothing, like you're old and you don't have a high school degree, right? You don't have any way you got other points. Um, you can't get in. It's actually uh, like yeah. funnier than that. In I the, think the funnier one is that being an Olympic medalist right? gets you, I think, 15 points because there's apparently this shortage of Olympic medalists that we're trying it's, to address. It's honestly, it's it's worse than that. It, in the in the brief sort of summary documents of this, you hear this described as Nobel Prize or Olympic medal winner. But if you dive into the legislative text, it specifies that only a Nobel Prize in natural and social sciences <laughs> gets you the twenty five. It's a literature is like no go. Yeah, so there's evidently Sorry, Orhan Palmu, <laughs> a concern that the country will be flooded with Nobel Prize in literature winners. But, but this is to the point that. I don't think this is where Trump's views are, are coming in. I don't think this legislation makes a ton of sense from that, but, but we can argue it. But I think we at this point are watching a presidency that is repeatedly expressing a view that this should just be a whiter country. It should be a whiter country not because of the economy and not because of uh, any sort of particular views even about terrorism. It, it expresses itself in, in fears of terrorism, expresses itself in fears of the economy, but also just expresses itself in um, support for uh, white supremacists marching in Charlottesville. And so it's no one thing, but I do think it's important to just put it in context of, you know, what the president has revealed about himself this week, which is not something people necessarily didn't know but it was revealed with, you know, real stark clarity. And it is an important lens through which a lot of the rest of his agenda makes more sense. Why he is, you know, in every place where you might have a choice between more people coming in from, from the outside and fewer. Why he chooses, no matter what the metric on which you're making the decision is, um, many, many fewer. I found one of the things kind of thinking through the RAISE Act that was helpful was to divide it into two parts. On the one hand, you have the limit. It's doing two major things at the same time. 
one is just putting a much more stringent limit on legal immigration. Like Matt said, this is not on people coming into the country through illegal means. This is actually people who have visas, different government-sponsored ways of getting here. So one is actually this cap. The other is changing who gets in, changing to this more merit-based system. That uh, A note on the Olympic athletes, presumably you want people who are rising, who, are, who have not won an Olympic medal yet, um, who who are are up-and-coming athletes, but you have this merit-based system, you could do these two things separately. You could, um, you know, keep the immigration system we have right now and just say fewer people. We we are going to keep the same requirements. On the flip side, you could go to merit-based and and really keep the amount of immigration the, the same. It feels a little funny to me that you would tether the two together. I think that speaks to the idea. You were mentioning, Ezra, suggesting that, you know, the goal of this is limiting certain types of people from coming to the United States, limiting the type of you know Hispanic immigrants that we've seen come in under current visa programs, changing the makeup of, of who those people are. You would think if you switch to the merit-based system, the, the goal would be just bringing in good workers. You wouldn't, you know, if you have a merit-based system, I don't know that you'd want such a stringent cap if the idea is bringing kind of the best and the brightest into the United States. If you had all these people over the 30-point threshold, it'd be a little bit odd to have have a cap on it. And one of the things that feels a little bit funny to me about the RAISE Act is, like you were mentioning a, a little bit, is it's not quite clear what economic problem it's solving. And in a way, it seems like it could, you know, make things worse. Matt had a piece recently, which I think you'll probably talk about, about an analysis suggesting that if you implemented the RAISE Act, it would actually slow economic growth. Um, It's not clear that the type of people the RAISE Act brings in are the ones that are lacking in the American workforce. Um, But I don't know, Matt, you've thought more about this, about kind of like uh, maybe just setting aside the cap, but the actual idea of a merit-based immigration system, which to be fair, you know, is one that Canada uses, one that Australia uses, one that some liberal think tanks have endorsed, but now are kind of quiet on. Um, it's not the craziest, most Trumpian policy we've seen. Yeah, I mean, I would say the the main thing on the idea of the switch to a sort of education based system, because that's the main point here. I mean, I think I, I think the Nobel Prize provisions are funny, but also presumably you could tweak that in subcommittee and Tom Cotton wouldn't, you know, like lose his his mind over it. I think that there's actually a misconception among a lot of people who um, write about this casually, and they don't recognize that under current policy, the current flow of immigrants into the United States is more educated than the native population, Uh, which isn't to say that making that a formal requirement of entry is a terrible idea, but the gains that you get in terms of the educational profile of the immigrant population from switching to cotton system are not that big, right? If you have in your head this idea that the flows of immigrants are, you know, these like overwhelmingly these unwashed masses uh, who who are contributing uh, nothing of value, and then, okay, we're going to have a system where it's going to be mostly college graduates, that can create a, a certain picture in your mind, but you're taking a population that's already better educated than most Americans and just kind of amping it up. Um, so then when you combine a relative, a meaningful, but modest increase in the educational profile of who comes in with a huge cut in the number of people who come in, uh, what the sort of Penn Wharton economic model, and I think most other economic models will um, agree with this, is that you're actually reducing the number of skilled workers in the country, and you're going to end up making the native population poorer than they were before. Um, So I think that if you if you set aside the sort of just like pure racial paranoia element of this and you accept the sort of economic logic of skills-based migration, it's a no-brainer to say that, you know, if skilled immigrants are good, then you should be setting a reasonable bar to identify them, but letting many more of them in, right? So uh, under this bill, you know, you could have a person who's 36 years old, speaks English fluently, graduated from an American college, but in a non-technical subject, and their salary is 
a little bit over the median household income. Is this but, you, Matt? But not wildly <laughs> above. And they um, they wouldn't qualify for entry. And, and a question asked about that is like, why? You know, so they would if they could get to 1.5 times the median income. So that's like $75,000 as opposed to $55,000, then Cotton will let them in. But but what's the problem with them if they're only making 55, right? I mean, people slightly above the median income are like not on welfare. They're not on food stamps. Um, so, and by uh, definition in this, they're, they're young, they're contributing to Social Security and Medicare. Um, they speak English. So like, what's the problem? And that to me is how, if we were to move to a, a skills and credential-based system, that's how I would want to think about it, right? We would be setting thresholds for categories of people where we're saying, look, if you're young and you speak English and you have a job, um, yeah, why not? Why not come to America, right? Like, what's what's the issue? Um, and I also do think that there's a kind of missing opportunity here to think more seriously about what skills the American economy needs. They're leaning very heavily just like on your salary. So if you could get a job at like a hedge fund, right, you get a ton of points for this because you'd be paid an enormous amount of money. But I think if you step back and look at American society and the American economy, I wouldn't really say that we necessarily are acutely lacking in hedge fund managers or like quantitative trading algorithm writers. Whereas you might say, okay, if you want to go work as a medical doctor, you know, and you're qualified to do that, we should let you in. And we should, frankly, cut you a break if your English isn't so hot and things like that, that the United States could really use more uh, supply of healthcare professionals so we could get the unit costs down, so we could make provision for people in rural areas. We have some small programs along those lines, but looking at social needs rather than like what the business community happens to want to pay people a lot of money to do seems like a more sensible. Right. Approach. Well, and even like on that example, I'd say you think of like someone who wants to be a home health worker in the United States where there's a huge shortage. It is not mm -hmm. a highly paid position, but it's something we need a lot more of. And, you know, those people are not going to be above the median income. They'll be far below. But I think it like speaks to your point of like, what is the goal of this policy? Is it filling is it filling holes in the labor force or it doesn't it doesn't suggest that the Raise Act was drafted to to do a thing like that? Learning is great. If you like the weeds, you probably like to learn. If you host the weeds, you definitely like to learn. And one great way to do that is with the Great Courses Plus. Uh, they give you unlimited access to this giant library of fascinating video lectures. There's a lot of stuff about politics, about economics, uh, fun stuff about cooking, about better photos. It's like getting to sit in on, on the sort of most intriguing university courses anytime you want without the pressure of tests. Uh, you can stream or download the videos. You can watch them anywhere. I, I really recommend uh, a course I've checked out lately called Your Deceptive Mind, a Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills. And, and this is about, you know, the fact that we're we're human, right? Our, our brains work certain ways. And it can leave us very prone to misinformation, but we can also learn to understand ourselves and think more responsibly and how to act on information in a sort of non-biased, effectively processed kind of way. Um, so it's it teaches you how to sort of think critically about your own thinking and get smarter about the world instead of just having sort of knee-jerk and biased responses. Uh, sign up for The Great Courses Plus today, and as one of our listeners, you'll get unlimited access to all of their courses free for one month when you sign up through our special URL. So start your free month. You're going to love it. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash weeds. That's TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash weeds. If you've ever wanted to see The Weeds in person, we've got some great news for you. We are bringing the show to the Now Hear This podcast festival in New York City this September. Ezra is not going to be with us, but me, Sarah, and Darlind, who's been on the show many times, are going to be there. It's going to be really great. We did one live show previously in D.C. It was a lot of fun. Really looking forward to doing it again. So if you're going to be in New York, you should you should really consider checking this out. The lineup for the festival includes great shows like Love It or Leave It, Larry Wilmore's Black 
Back on the Air, Politically Reactive, and The Crack Podcast, uh, plus favorites from Gimlet, Public Radio, Earwolf, and Radiotopia. It's a great value. One ticket gets you access to all 25 live shows throughout the weekend, and the first 100 people to use offer code WEEDS at checkout save $20. Uh, so now hear this is September 8th through 10th in New York City. Come see great podcasts, meet the hosts, and make some new friends. Go to nowhearthisfest.com to get your tickets. That's nowhearthisfest.com and enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to save 20 bucks. Really hoping to see you there. I do think there is a dense fog of confusion in this issue, and some of that confusion is honest and, and real, and some of that is injected. This whole debate reminds me of nothing so much as the Medicaid block granting debate, where you have this argument that you'll hear from the right. Well, actually, let me start this differently, that people, that Republicans want to cut Medicaid by quite a bit, right? In, in recent bills, it's been cut by as much as a, a third in spending, but cutting Medicaid is unpopular. So then you get these Medicaid block granting proposals and you look at them and and they say, hey, you know, Medicaid would be so great if only states had the flexibility to use the money however they wanted. And you say, well, what flexibility do you mean? And, you know, the answers get a little muddy and you go back and forth. And then you look at the bill and the way the flexibility works is you get to do what you want with the money, but the money shrinks um, in terms of its growth rate. And so you end up with a huge cut. And then you say, aha, this actually wasn't about flexibility because if it was about flexibility, you could have just proposed this and kept the funding stream constant. It's really about creating, uh, like obscuring what's really happening, which is a very large cut. In this case too, I don't think this, I mean, you can go back and forth on a points-based immigration system, but, but as Sarah said, if that's really what you wanted to do, just don't include a giant cut to immigration. You would make it a lot less controversial, right? You could just have a debate over should immigration be based around family ties and, and related things, or should it be based on, on points and economic merit? And people could clash on that, but it wouldn't be a debate over whether or not we should have as many immigrants in this country. And, and of course, that's not what you're seeing here at all. You're seeing a debate where... It allows people to say, oh, what we're doing is changing who comes in to be more economically efficient. But actually, no, like what it's doing is cutting who comes in under the cover of another argument that sounds less nativist. One reason I, I think this debate just ends up being very strange from an economics point of view is that what people are talking about here, although they don't do a good job of like laying it out, is complementary labor versus substituting labor, right? Labor that, you know, a substitute labor is like somebody who has the exact set of skills you do. And so plausibly, if you just imagine the economy is a more fixed buy, um, if they get the job, you just won't get the job and there just won't be a job for you. And then complementary labor is people who have a different set of skills than you do. Somebody who does not speak English already has a very different skill set than you do. They're not going to do any job where, for instance, speaking English is, is important to you. But if they're more willing to do a lot of like long, hot physical labor in fields, it might be that your economy can have more total workers and output because, I mean, this is where you get into this argument that is real and people do have and don't always like of there being jobs Americans uh, won't do or at least won't do with the wages that those jobs can support. Okay. On the flip of this, the one thing people don't seem to have any trouble grokking economically is that it is good for a country to have a higher birth rate. It is good for a country to see a, a growing population rather than a declining one. We talk all the time in, in, in policy about how it's a huge problem that Japan has this declining population because it is a low birth rate and no immigration, basically. In, uh, Europe often has declining population in, in, in some of the countries, and everybody understands it's an economic problem. And if you think about it from this complementary substitution lens, it's much more competitive to just have more kids who are exactly like all the other kids, right, who speak English, who are from America, who grow up in this culture. But nobody thinks it would be a bad thing. I don't think it would be a bad thing. But it's because first, when we're talking about birth rates, somehow people like they realize that the economy is not a fixed pie and having more people means you can have more productivity gains and more economic growth. Um, somehow immigration activates a zero sum concept of the economy that larger birth rates don't. Uh, but it's also because and again, going back to like, what is this all really about? A lot of this is not actually about economics. It's about this feeling that America should be more full of native-born Americans and not have as many people who are not native-born Americans. And when you grow more of your own workers, um, that's one way of, of, of 
the, you know, composing the character of your country. And when you import more workers, it is a different way of composing the character of your country. And for a lot of people, this is about the character of their country. And it's not actually about the economics at all. And so I, I never quite know what to do in these arguments, because you can have this long argument about the economics of it. And I actually think immigration is one of these issues where it's like the economics are so overwhelmingly clear. Even if you look at the most anti-immigrant stuff, the George Boris stuff, which is now under pretty heavy um, academic question as to whether or not it's even true, you're only looking you're looking at an overall wage gain for the population and only hurting um, high school dropouts, uh, which there would be other ways to help them if what you're concerned about doing is really helping them. You could compensate them very easily. But, not, but everybody agrees immigration is good for the overall economy. But we're just not actually having that conversation. We're having this other conversation that um, people sanitize by making it about wages and jobs. But I, I, th- I think that it's actually dangerous to kind of mix up some of these different impulses that exist. Because one thing that I hear more and more from sort of center-right people, frankly, from from center-left people too, I mean, people who want the Democratic Party to rethink its position on immigration uh, one way or another for sort of political reasons is, well, look, you know, we have this backlash, we have Trump, uh, you have to respond somehow pragmatically to public concern about this. And then there's a view that because there is less um, anti-immigrant backlash politics in Canada, that that goes to show that adopting a more Canadian approach to who is allowed in will reduce domestic backlash in the United States and sort of solve our problem. And I I think that that is an important concern. You know, I mean, I, I think that it is important to the country economically and globally to allow large numbers of immigrants to move here. So we should think seriously about how to do that while minimizing political backlash. But I think that that's a bit of a, a naive analysis of the Canadian situation. I mean, not well. Sarah's an actual Canadian, um, but but you you took Canadian studies in college, so Canadian? we're evenly matched here. Well, on a points based Canadian system. <laughs> the thing about Canada, right, is that it's a bilingual, binational society that has a large francophone minority population, and that as a deliberate matter of government policy since the 1960s has portrayed a like vision of Canadian identity, like heavily propagandized as this kind of like bland, inoffensive northern nice guy, because, you know, because things happen in countries, right? Like you could imagine American history as having taken a a, a different path and and sort of gone this route. Um, But but Canada... It cultivates multiculturalism as part of its national identity as a deliberate uh, government strategy. As Zach Beecham has a has a good article on on Vox about this uh, from a while back. It's it's not just a sort of free floating immigration system, and that then when you think about what annoys people about immigration, it often cuts in the opposite direction from the sort of economic concerns about competition and and collaboration, right? That you will hear from people that they don't like uh, to see, you know, whole neighborhoods where all the signage is in Spanish, right? Or they don't like uh, to need to press one for English on, on a phone tree, right? That they, it's not that anybody thinks that like, for some human beings to speak the Spanish language is a great moral outrage, but they want to be, uh, you know, masters in their own house, right? That in America, we speak English and they don't like to see that sort of eroded. So you could say, well, our immigration system should be much more biased toward English language skills, right? And in particular, not just to people who have competency in English, but you could give people points for not speaking foreign languages, right? We could allow huge amounts of immigration from the Anglophone Caribbean. Um, and I think, in fact, if you go to places like like Brooklyn in, in New York, where they have a lot of immigrants from the Anglophone Caribbean, uh, you tend not to see a, a ton of, of backlash and, and stuff to that. It seems kind of inoffensive, some guys from the Bahamas or, or Jamaica or, or Belize or whatever. Uh, but those people are in very real labor market competition with native-born working class Americans, precisely because their culture and language background is not different enough, right? Uh, whereas people who come from from Guatemala or the Philippines or, or, or whatever like that, people who don't speak English 
are coming in with a lot of complementary skills. They open restaurants that Americans couldn't do. They can't fill supervisory roles that Americans can fill. And part of the, in America, our national narrative about ourself that makes people feel good about diversity tends to be one about the hard scrabble immigrants who come here from foreign lands where they are quite poor and they work in low status jobs in order that their children could come have a better life, right? Like that's that's the positive story that we tell about ourselves. And it relies on, in fact, a large amount of the immigration coming from people who have relatively low formal educational credentials, that people like my great-grandparents, so some came from Cuba, some came from Poland, and, you know... I, I mean, it's a it's a cliche American story, but like they came here with nothing and they were peddlers on the street and they worked rolling cigars and then their kids learned English and went to high school. And that that's like that's the American dream and trying to transform it into a system where everybody's going to come and they're going to be um, like corporate managers and stuff would actually be quite an inversion of, of the traditional strategy. Personally, I would be for parking this wherever the politics really could land it, but I'm a I'm a little skeptical that what Americans uh, genuinely want is what is envisioned in a lot of these sort of point-based schemes. And in that case, I really don't know like what the point of it would be. Um and and it's striking always to me that anti-immigration politics is centered in the places where immigrants aren't living, which makes me wonder what about changing the reality would change things at all. Yeah, and one thought I have, I know you were mentioning Canada's um merit-based immigration system, of which the the Cliff family is a beneficiary. My parents immigrated to Canada in the um 1970s and congratulations I, on their merit. <laughs> um what? Oh, on their merit. Yes. My dad, you know, I guess they passed the score and they got jobs in Quebec and, you know, they, they seem to blend in very well with the with the native people there um, and had two children in Canada. You can see um, I've met your parents and I would never know they weren't Canadian. Yeah, they you get you get extra totally points because because they're bilingual in Canada. If you speak English and French. Oh, they didn't speak. French. You, oh, well, but if you do, if they do, they get, learn. You, yeah, I get way more points in Canada than under Tom Cotton's bill but, because I took French in high school. Um, well, but, you know, one pushback to that is, you know, it's true Canada has its merit-based system, but they also have been much more welcoming to refugees, you know, and one of the things the RAISE Act would do, as I understand it, is really cut immigration from refugee populations, yeah. whereas you see in Canada, it, it is true, you also, you, you don't have the backlash we've had here, but you've had much more robust refugee immigration, particularly in the Syrian crisis, when Trump said, you know, these people aren't welcome here. You have, you know, Justin Trudeau standing up there saying, well, we'll take all these Syrian refugees. We're happy to have them. So I I, I um, am a little bit skeptical of the argument that if we had this merit-based system, things would be different. And I actually think you raise a good point, Matt, that, that you know, things there might be more tension if you have merit-based immigration because of this idea of people coming in with the same skill set and ending up um, in the jobs that Americans are currently working in. Um, 60 Minutes has been doing some really interesting reporting on H-1B visas and companies using those H-1B visas to bring in lower paid workers and literally have the people who have done the jobs before. It really is like the Trumpian nightmare in a way where people are, are having some foreign worker come sit next to them and train them for the job that they're being fired from. And kind of in a weird way, you're, you're almost increasing the odds of American jobs being stolen if you want to go this points-based route where you, where you might see more of that type of immigration. Right. I mean, it's it's are we really going to have less resentment of foreign born people if the foreigners are holding the jobs that native born Americans aspire to than if they're holding like low pay doing seasonal agricultural work where I think it's reasonable to say like whether or not it's true that Americans, quote unquote, won't do that, that our like vision of prosperity is not. Well, you're going to go like pick fruit seasonally and then have to move from town to town with, with the harvest. So that's not our vision. Whereas if you bring in, if foreigners are holding all the like desirable 
jobs, then we're going to say, well, good for you because you you had good merit. Um, that's I, I think that's like an optimistic view of human nature, uh, particularly coming from people who are rather mean spirited in their general political approach. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe Tom Cotton sees this more clearly than me, but I don't quite buy it. You know, what struck me as an optimistic view of human nature. What? Sharing reduction subsidies? The CBO's view of how health insurance <laughs> markets would respond to the Trump administration shutting up cost sharing reductions. That's, that's smooth, Ezra. Thank um, you. I bet nobody noticed we were changing topics. Nope, nope. It was just super <laughs> seamless. Um, <laughs> so we got, it's been quiet on the healthcare front for the past few weeks. And we finally got yet another CBO report, which is always a, a joyous moment here in the Vox newsroom. And they put out this report on these cost-sharing reduction subsidies. And you know, some of you might know what those are. I'm just going to take a second to walk through what, what these are, why they matter. These are um, subsidies for low-income Obamacare enrollees, people who earn less than 250% of the poverty line. These people get subsidies to help lower their premiums. So, you know, their premium might fall from $100 a month to $50 a month. But because they're in because they're below 250% of the poverty line, they also get subsidies to lower their deductibles or copayment. So you might be buying a plan with a $3,000 deductible, but you're going to get a subsidy to lower it to $1,000. Or maybe your premiums fall or your um, copayments fall from $25 for a doctor visit to $7. So they really make these plans more affordable for a, a low-income population. There is a lawsuit currently pending in federal court that argues that the money for these subsidies was never appropriated by Congress. This was actually started under former House Speaker John Boehner, who was looking for a lawsuit, you know, to challenge the Obama administration, to challenge federal overreach. And they settled on this particular issue. And they've been somewhat successful. Um, they've won at a lower court. They're currently at a court at um, a at the Federal Court of Appeals here in D.C. And so we're in this situation where the House is arguing that these subsidies are illegal, the Trump administration doesn't have the authority to pay them, and the Trump administration has this decision it's been hemming and hawing about about whether it wants to defend these subsidies in court, whether it wants to, you know, keep fighting as the Obama administration did and say, we have the authority to pay these, we're going to keep paying these, or just say, you know what, we agree with the House. We're not going to pay these. We think they're illegal. We're ending this case. We're not going to defend this issue anymore. So it, it makes these cost-sharing reductions kind of a unique part of the Affordable Care Act because Trump could shut them off whenever he wants. There are most of the Affordable Care Act, as we learned, is very challenging to repeal through Congress. But this is one part because of this lawsuit where Trump, and it's about an $8 billion fund. So it's a significant amount of money. So Trump has been really, I, I describe it as aggressively ambiguous about whether he will do this, whether he will shut these off. Each month, he kind of hems and haws about it. They, um, you know, talk about it's a bailout to, co to insurance companies. We might stop paying it. He's really um, stoked uncertainty about the future of these payments. So in the context of that, the CBO put out a report Tuesday afternoon about what would happen if Trump, you know, decided, you know what, we're not paying these. That, you know, by the end of this month, he says, in 2018, these subsidies don't exist. And insurance companies would still be required to um, to offer these cheaper plans to low-income Obamacare enrollees. They would still have to offer those lower co-payments. So they would essentially be stuck with the cost and they would raise premiums. So what CBO estimates in this report is that if Trump goes this route, if he ends the cost-sharing reduction payments, premiums would rise 20% in 2020 and 25% in 2025. And this is like the real kicker to me. The federal government would actually have to spend $194 billion more dollars over the next decade if it ends these subsidies, which is just like bananas that you have stumbled into a policy where you could both raise premiums for individuals and increase federal government spending. Um, the reason government spending goes up is because there are also premium subsidies in Obamacare if premiums spike 20%, the government is going to spend more money subsidizing the more expensive premiums. And essentially, CBO estimates, and, and outside economic groups have estimated this too, that you're going to more than offset the money saved by not paying CSRs by much more money going into premium subsidies. So it's just it really the CBO report like really laid clear for me that like there's no policy advantage to doing this. There's no like 
oh, we're going to save the government money by not paying these funds, or oh, we're going to make the market work better. You're going to increase the deficit. You're going to raise premiums. You're going to cause chaos in the market next year. It's pretty clear that this is about making Obamacare not work very well. It's about Obamacare sabotage. We're sponsored today by Blue Apron, which is uh, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. It's a really sort of convenient, fun way to get cooking new stuff at home. Even if you love to cook like like I do, it can still be hard sometimes to think about new and creative recipes. And Blue Apron, you know, they send right to your home uh, all the stuff that you need to cook. And they have designed really good recipes built around really good ingredients. So it'll kind of extend your range, reintroduce a little more variety, a little interest into your cooking. And and keep you focused on the sort of fun part, which is enjoying delicious meals and the process of creating them rather than the kind of research and logistics stuff that, that gets annoying, especially if you're busy. It's affordable. For less than $10 per person per meal, uh, they give you seasonal recipes with pre-portioned ingredients that help you make delicious home-cooked meals. There's great variety. There's enormous flexibility. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Uh, I'm not picky. I, I like whatever. Um, my wife is, is not the same, and Blue Apron is, is great. It lets you make sure that you're going to get something that you're going to like. Uh, the directions are really easy to follow. It's broken down in an amazing step-by-step way. It's pre-portioned, and you can get things done in about 40 minutes or less. And there's a freshness guarantee. Uh, they promise that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook, or they will make it right. Uh, so here's what you need to know. You check out this week's menu, and you get your first three meals for free with free shipping. If you go to blueapron.com weeds, you can love how good it feels, how good it tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash weeds. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. I think this uh, is very consonant with what has appeared to me to be the Republican Party's actual preference on healthcare policy for some time now, which is like, what if we had Obamacare, but it was much, much worse? (laughs) Like, what if we had a reasonably similar structure, but it just didn't work at all to cover people? Um, In this case, because they've not been able to pass a bill that did that, they're thinking about sabotaging it. So you have the literal same bill and just that bill works somewhat worse. But the the whole thing is almost comical. One thing that I I think is a a useful point in, in the politics of this, congressional Republicans do not want Trump to do this. They have been asking him not to do this, like to to just keep paying the subsidies, let them go through a normal legislative process, like back off, don't create a disaster for no reason. And and Trump is is not just obviously defying Democrats, but he's also at this point in continuing with this uncertainty, defying Republicans who, if they can't repeal Obamacare, do not obviously see it to be a winner, that they just make everybody miserable and get blamed for it on the other end. But I don't know, like this is not policymaking. Like this is pure, I I don't even know what to call this. This made me wonder if we could all stop being dumb for like, not we, frankly, if Donald Trump could stop being dumb for a week. Could they increase CSR payments, create more signups among healthy people, lower premiums and end up lowering premiums enough to save the government money? I mean, it would be a remarkable coincidence if the way this was crafted just like happened to hit upon the optimal point. It seems like in a, in a, in a sane universe, what we should be doing is instead of like coming up with this one notion, having the CBO go score it, having them come back and be like, this is a disaster in every possible respect. We ought to like crank up the model and like actually figure out what the optimal level of subsidy to provide is and be providing that level of subsidy. I mean, obviously this isn't going to happen, right? But it it seems like there's a, a low-hanging opportunity here to, to nudge a few more people who are not currently participating in Obamacare markets into the risk pools and produce some, some fairly widespread social gains. You could even, in my pet project, pair this with increasing the mandate penalty a little bit so that you're giving people a little more carrot and a little more stick and like really make everything work a lot better. I mean, I know that they seem in the White House to have just out of hand rejected the idea 
of crafting policy to improve people's lives and then take credit for having done so. Um, but that is traditionally how we govern in the country is you try to make things work better and then you take credit for it. And it seems like there's like a real opportunity here. Yeah, there's actually a good, it's not our white paper this week, but it's another NBER paper from some economists at MIT who are looking at take up of health insurance in Massachusetts. And they were looking at focusing on a low income population there. And one of the things they found was that, um, in that for each $40 increase in monthly premiums, take up falls 25%. So there's a huge response there. Like, um, you know, small tweaks in the, I guess $40 isn't small, but it's, you know, it's, it's a significant amount, you know, if you're someone at the poverty line, which is about 12,000 or so dollars, an extra $40 a month, um, you know, over, 12 months is a significant amount of money. And so I think you're right that there is certainly some low-hanging fruit and that um, behavior is very, very malleable with small changes. One of the things that kind of surprised me about the CBO report is they actually, you know, they do expect very short-term chaos, but they actually (laughs) weirdly expect that um, in the long term, this will actually make Obamacare work a bit better because it's going to force the government to spend more money on subsidies and more money on subsidies means higher enrollment. We're talking about the C- CBO expects by 2020, if the if the CSRs are pulled by 2020, um, the number of uninsured will decline by 1 million because people who um, are just above that threshold to get CSR subsidies, people who earn 300% of the poverty line and the cutoff is 250 they're all of a sudden going to get a ton of cash to pay their premiums because the premiums are spiking and the premium subsidies are spiking. So they're qualifying for all this money that they didn't get before. Um, so And the CBO, you know, we had a background call with some other staff. They kind of walked us through these people who are at like 275% of poverty, 300% of poverty. They would be significant winners to the point that um, the CBO expects more of them to sign up. The people who get really screwed over here, though, are people who don't qualify for premium subsidies. Those end at 400 percent of the poverty line. So if you're someone earning like $50,000 a year, which is not nothing, but it's also, you know, not a lavish salary, your premiums are going to go up 20 percent and like you're just going to be stuck paying that. So it really actually in a weird way rebalances the winners of Obamacare's to this like low middle income group. I think two quick points on this that are that are worth making. One is that Donald Trump, and I recognize it's just politics and, you know, what he thinks will, will pull well, but he keeps calling this an insurance bailout, so we shouldn't have it. And it is worth noting that the Republican bills in all of their various iterations were built around, like, huge insurer slush funds that were just, like, going to be handed out to make all the risk problems that they were creating in their pools try and, and, and come out in the wash. And so... The Republican Party and and, and in general, and Donald Trump in particular, has no problem with structurally what these CSRs are doing. It is simply like an argument being made to kill these, and then they would bring back a version of them under some of their own plans. Uh, So I just want to note, not that hypocrisy is even close to, to the most salient political or policy sin we're seeing recently, but it is out there. Um, the other thing that that I do think is interesting, Matt had a nice piece uh, the day after the Charlottesville protests where he, he was talking about the way Trump's political strategy of inflicting um, or exacerbating racial conflict has not led to any kind of policy agenda that is helping these sort of downscale whites who are imagined to be the, the constituents for that policy, um, except in like a, a, a cultural way. Uh, policies like this, like it will hurt those people. It, it, it is not good um, for there is no positive agenda Trump has for these like angry white working class voters who feel like they are being replaced. And, you know, and I think the, the more sympathetic version of, of that story feel like that because they're in, in economic duress and, you know, are just looking for an answer. And when you're doing that, sometimes you find a scapegoat. Uh, even if you take that story this kind of thing where you take somebody who's making $55,000 a year and you make insurance impossible to afford for them, that will hurt a lot of white, you know, lower middle class, middle class Trump voters in these sort of rural areas. And it just it's another piece of the just like dense cloud of confusion and weirdness around this presidency that just seems to be uh, this 
incredible effort to just create losers without, with the exception of people who, super rich people who might eventually get tax cuts without creating any obvious winners. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's worth saying because I, I fear even looking at all the criticism Trump is taking on that somebody is kind of sitting there in their living room watching this play out on CNN and thinking, you know, I don't really totally approve of how Trump is addressing neo-Nazi marchers, but at least he's he's got my back. You know, like if America devolves into race war or something, you know, he's going to be on my side. And it's when you look at these things that are not like splashing out on cable as much that you really see that like nobody's back is being had here. Like, I don't know why you would consider this CSR move like for a minute. Right. Like this is something that Trump, you know, he's a new president. You maybe want to kick the tires. You, you'd be like, <laughs> what, what's the deal with this insurer bailout? I hear I can cut. And then somebody explains it to you and you're like, that's really dumb. We're definitely not going well, to do I will do say that. it's like to emphasize a point Ezra made, like congressional Republicans oppose this. Insurance companies oppose this. The White House is the only force at this point tinkering with this idea. There's and, no one else like they, saying, hey, they, here's a good idea. And they keep mulling it over yes. because it's like a sociopathic approach to policymaking that has no winners or no logic to it, right? I mean, it's it's like completely nutty. And, you know, and again, I totally understand why it does not attract the same level of attention as more kind of spectacular things that Trump does, but even more so than this kind of like gross stuff that will, you know, get corporate executives to say, I need to distance myself from Trump. I think this is like the truly telling when someone reveals to you who they truly are, right? Like this is a guy who, when he has the opportunity to delve deep into the weeds of a boring but significant public policy question, is seriously considering taking the option that will make every single person worse off. And like, I don't know why he is seriously considering that, but like, let's just inflict suffering on lots of people is like an option that Donald Trump thinks we should take seriously because he he likes the drama. He doesn't like Barack Obama. Like, I, I don't know what, but like, it's, it's, it's horrible. And like, there's no, nobody is going to end up better off over the long run if, like, this approach to making under-the-radar decisions is, is what persists. And there's over 10,000 varieties of wine grapes that are grown all across the world. And then they're, you know, made available in, in different kinds of combinations out there. So, you know, why would you want to just stick to doing the same thing over and over and over again? And Wink is, is a great solution to that kind of dilemma. It lets you explore the world of wine uh, in an affordable, flexible, fun, easy, accessible way. You just go to trywink.com. It's spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com. You take a brief palette profile quiz, and they're going to recommend distinct and interesting wines actually customized to your palate to be shipped directly to your door every month. Um, they work directly with winemakers to make uh, sort of cut out the middleman, make this really, really affordable. You'll come, you'll drink wines, you're going to rate them according to what you like best. That's going to make the recommendations better and better with every month to come. So you're going to be consistently getting new things, but things that you like. Uh, it's really great. Um, so you can join for free. You can skip any month. You can cancel anytime and they have a 100% satisfaction guarantee so you never pay for a bottle you don't like. And right now, uh, Wink is offering listeners $20 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash weeds. They will even cover the cost of shipping. That's trywink, spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash weeds to get $20 off your first order right now plus complimentary shipping. Trywink.com slash weeds. Okay, so let's, um, we've been doing this for a while, but let's do our white paper this week, which has an amazing title. The title is Surprise! It has an exclamation point. So surprise, out-of-network billing for emergency care in the United States. Um, this comes from a trio at Yale University um, led by Zach Cooper, who's a health economist there. And they have been doing some really cool things. They have this um, data set from a private health insurance company who um, is not named, but kind of handed over all their data, which includes 9 million emergency room visits, $28 billion in emergency room spending. And what they show in this paper is that 
um, one in five Americans go to the emergency room every year. And in those emergency room visits, 22% visit an in-network hospital but see an out-of-network provider. So in other words, you know, you go to a hospital that your insurance company contracts with, you see some doctor there, they fix your sprained ankle, they, you know, deal with your appendicitis, whatever you're there for. And you have no idea if they're a network or not. And they find that in one in five cases, they are not in network. Um, this is problematic because they find that out-of-network providers charge 630% of Medicare rates um, in network providers for comparison charge 266% of Medicare rates. And one of the things they really, which both are much higher than Medicare, I will yeah, say. I <laughs> <laughs> um, one is egregiously higher. And one of the things they kind of zoom in on, they find, is that there's this company, MCare, and um, the upshot at the New York Times did a nice story about this that we'll link to in show, in show notes that essentially has been going into American emergency rooms, contracting, saying, hey, we'll staff your emergency room and jacking up out-of-network billing, where they um, they find that after contracting with MCARE, a hospital's out-of-network prices go up 81 to 90 percentage points. Um, so these out-of-network bills, they allow higher, much higher billing of patients. And demand doesn't really change. You know, you can't, typically when you're in the emergency room, one, it's you think you're a network, so you don't ask about it. Um, it can often be quite hard in, you know, a doctor visit to find out if you, if this doctor is actually a network. And um, a lot of times they actually are emergent situations. Like, you don't have time to mess around when you have some kind of life-threatening injury to find out, well, like, are you a network? Like, can you let me know about that? Um, so it was another one of these, like, baffling, terrible things about our healthcare system and in a way that a for-profit, you know, emergency care company has really found a niche to to exploit for for their profit. It seems yeah, really this, bad. This seems <laughs> some bad. like outrageous shit. I don't I don't know what to say. <laughs> it, it does to me this is, you know, Sarah and I harp on this pricing issue a lot. And this just is another example that there is something in the system that I always find puzzling. But I, I just have a lot of debates with my conservative healthcare wonk friends about how Medicare is the root of all evil in, in, in American healthcare. And then you look at this and it's like Medicare often seems to be the only thing that has like any kind of sensible uh, structure built around it. I mean, the pricing variations in, in healthcare, there's just no way to look at that and say, this is what the market should be doing. This is a market that has real transparency, that has anything happening in it at all. Um, and, you know, it's, I think it's very hard to look at this and say, oh, well, the problem is just we, we've not regulated it correctly. I think you have to look at this and say, this is a market that understands that when people enter it, they are not in a place to act as rational, calm, thoughtful consumers. Like they are not in a place to say, Best Buy, your flat screen televisions are too expensive. Like I'm going to go to Amazon. Like you don't get to do that. You came in in an ambulance or you're terrified because your daughter is sitting there and she's vomiting and you pay and like you don't even know what you're paying up front but like what if you did like what if they like handed you your daughter's vomiting it's like well this is how much this doctor will cost what are you going to do with that information you have insurance you just move um it's bad and it's one reason like i am not a huge fan of price controls in most parts of the american economy in most parts of really any economy but one reason i, I tend to lean towards them in healthcare is because the consumer is so weakened in healthcare. They're in such a bad position to be acting as a negotiator that I think that's a point for the government to step in and act as a negotiator on their behalf. It's not a normal market because the people in that market are terrified and possibly incapacitated and possibly um, facing death. And it's just not a time when people are like, well, are you in or out of network? And, you know, let me go and get a couple quotes from other doctors at different hospitals, you know, and try to get time off for my work to do that. The whole thing, it, it has these banana pants outcomes. And I don't know how you can look at it and, and, and say, like, this is the kind of thing that if all we need was market forces, there are enough market forces in the system that it should have fixed this kind of pricing insanity. And it doesn't because the system is missing the absolute core thing that you need for a strong market, which is consumers who are in a position to act as actual consumers, not as terrified people looking for reassurance and help. I mean, 
mean, there's also just the question of like, would you want emergency medicine to operate on like, you know, kind of like bizarre principles? Like, I, I so <laughs> I I had heard something about this uh, for uh, going a, a while back, and and the I, I was in an emergency room with uh, with with my son who had it was one of these things that like takes you to an emergency room that wasn't genuinely like an emergency quote unquote, but like we he had to get some stitches, you know? Um, and they're like, okay, Dr. So-and-so is going to get you. And I was like, okay, but is this some kind of weird scam where it's going <laughs> to turn out that the insurance company sent me to this hospital, but then this doctor isn't covered. And the nurse was like really mad at me because I don't know. She's like doing her job. Like the emergency room is stressful for the people who are working there. There's all these crying children. There's like people there with like bona fide medical emergencies versus me with my off hour toddler with a cut chin. And they're like trying to triage people. They're trying to take care of people speaking different languages, uh, low income people with, you know, there's like a lot going on. And they don't want to sit there and be like negotiating with middle class parents about what the stitches are going to cost either. And it, it really, it makes you wonder, it's like, how is this supposed to work? If the way, if like one way it could work is that there's some like top down system of like what is fair for emergency rooms to do. And everybody just does that. And then the other system is like, there's these weird hidden scams, but like, I don't know how, like, like even if everybody did come in and they were like, all right, I'm driving a hard bargain now, you know, like, well, how much does that Band-Aid really cost? I'll, you know, like a car dealership or something like it would be crazy. Like, it's no it, it would cast the medical professionals like in the wrong light to like turn them into car salesmen. Yeah. And I've, to me. I've interviewed a number of emergency doctors, you know, on this particular issue about prices and, you know, really trying to get into discussions like, why why are your charges not up front? Why can I not see a list when I walk through the emergency room doors of what things are going to cost me? And the argument I often hear back is that we can't post our prices because then people would make decisions based on cost. And our goal is to provide them the best care possible. And, you know, to to be generous, like, I think it comes from a good place. These are people who just want to do their jobs, who want to provide good care. They went into medicine to help people and they feel like this is the way they can help people. At the same time, it strikes me as a very myopic view of, of the patients that, you know, that they live in a world where they have unlimited access to funds that they could, you know, afford any costs. And that, you know, I think people could make decisions like in, you know, the case of an injury, you know, they went there because it was open and they find out it's going to be, you know, $1,000 to treat it. I do not think it is threatening to patients to give them some of that information. Because I think, you're, you know, if you're in the case where it is an actual emergency, people will go through, deal with the bill later, and it will be quite frustrating. But I think it's okay if some people have, have paused and say, you know, is this worth it? Or could it be treated cheaper in some other way? And in, in no other industry would you make the argument that, we just have to keep our prices secret. And that's how, you know, patients will operate. Like, you know, we can't tell you the price of the flight because you really need to go see your family. So, so just book the flight and we'll just bill you <laughs> later and it'll be much better for your life because you'll have this really nice trip. It just doesn't hold water in any other industry. Also, I don't want to cast any aspersions on, on the ER doctors you're talking to, but that isn't even remotely a plausible explanation <laughs> for, for the exact reason you're seeing in this document. There isn't a price. Mm -hmm. Right. Medicare is paying one price. Aetna is paying another price. Cigna is paying a third price. Uninsured people are paying a terribly higher price. In-network people are paying a fifth price. Out-of-network people are paying a sixth price. Like you just go on and on down the line. Um, everybody's getting something different. You are getting a lot of the price negotiations happening between the uh, provider and your third party payer, right? The insurer. Like it just there is often a master charge list in a hospital somewhere, but it it like a little bit, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with what people are actually paying for the most part. I mean, again, in a world where just the government set all the prices and, and you can argue whether this world is better or not, then you can have a charge list, right? Then you can say, okay, like here's what things are going to cost. But if you put that in an ER, it would be actively misleading, right? Well, I have this insurance and that's not what it's going to cost me. Or I don't know what percentages my insurance covers. So I think, you know, it's going to cover 85% of that or 80% of that or 60% of that. But actually, this guy was out of network. So that's not what it's going to cost me. So, I mean, 
I, I, I always hear this thing about posting prices and it always strikes me as a little bit detached from how the healthcare system works because there aren't prices. I mean, different payers are negotiating different prices on like literally everything. And it just makes it very hard to, to structure a market that way. Well, now we get to, to my request for everyone. Now that we've gotten you fired up about emergency bills, I am working on a new project on emergency billing. I am digging into how much it actually costs to go to the emergency room. And since um, hospitals do not provide this data, I am asking you guys to do it. So we have set up a Google form, and you'll see this is going to be a pretty long-term project on my part um, of collecting emergency bills, collecting stories of what people have paid for care and what care they received in an emergent setting. I would be so, so grateful if you would submit your stories to us. There is a link to a form to do so in the show notes if you're listening in a podcast app. We will share the survey in our Facebook group, um, the Weeds Facebook group, which I think about 8,000 of you are members of. So you can go there to get it. And if you go to the the post on our website that has this episode, there will also be a link to the survey there. Um, right now, we're just kicking off. So we're starting with the Weeds Facebook group. You won't see this super widely advertised, but I would just be so incredibly grateful if you have a story of an emergency room bill to share. If you would just take like five to 10 minutes to, to fill that out, it would be a huge help to us as we start digging into this. All right. Well, you know, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, you know, subscribe, tell your friends, listen to the other Vox Media Podcast Network shows, tell your friends about those shows, tell your friends about everything. Thanks to our producer, Jillian Weinberger, and our uh, audio engineer, uh, Riyadh Shawi. We're going to be back with, a, with another Weeds episode on Friday. So, uh, you know, we'll, we will see you then. 